0: Of our Lord beginning in First Corinthians chapter 10. If you need to borrow a Bible, you may borrow one from the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find First Corinthians 10 on page 900 of that Bible. The Word of the Lord from First Corinthians chapter 10. There, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any questions for the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you over to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. May God add his richest blessings to this reading of his word. You may be seated. There are many things in life that seem much more complicated than they ought to be. There are a lot of things in life that are just as complicated as they ought to be. MRI machines, the space shuttle, the internal combustion engine. These things are complicated because they need to be complicated. They are complicated because they've got a lot of moving parts, because they do amazing things, because the technology is advanced. They, they need to be complicated. But there are other things in this world that are complicated for no good reason at all. Last week, I was getting ready to come into church and the weather had turned cold and I was out scraping off my windshield in the dark because it doesn't get light until eight o'clock. And so I'm scraping off my windshield and my windshield wiper pops off and I'm in the cold and I'm in the dark and the windshield wiper part broke off and then the little tab that comes with it broke off and, and I was so frustrated out there. My hands were cold. They weren't working well. I didn't have any light and I was like, why is this so complicated? Now, I know that I'm not a mechanical guy. I make fun of mechanical engineers because they deserve to be made fun of. But everyone knows that, who who really does know me, that I am not mechanically gifted. And so there's a reason why I would never have been a mechanical engineer. And I know that for some, they would look at it and be like, this is super easy. But I don't know why there need to be three different parts to a windshield wiper. I don't know why that can't be easier. There's a lot of things like that. This goes for things that you buy from Ikea, There's 8,000 steps to put together a shelf with three shelves on it. It's more complicated than it needs to be. If you've ever looked up any recipe online, you have to read through a story about how this man braved a winter in the Northwest Territories with spoon, a duct tape, and the best turkey chili you've ever had in your life. And there's no reason why you need to go through all of that to get to a recipe. And to be honest, the, the chapters that we've had now from 1 Corinthians, even going into 1 Corinthians 10, seems somewhat to fit into this category. It's a really easy situation. Should people eat meat offered to idols or not? It's a yes or no question. We, we probably could have had a couple of, of sentences of explanation, but now we've had three chapters of explanation on this. Not only three chapters here, but if you turn over to the book of Romans, there's a full chapter on the same issue in the book of Romans. That's four chapters given over to the fairly simple idea of whether or not we should eat meat that's been offered to idols in, in temples. And then you get an extra bonus if you turn to the book of Acts and notice that they actually deal with it in the book of Acts. Why does Paul especially give so much time to these things? Notice how much time he gives to other considerations. That the resurrection physically of Jesus Christ from the grave is true. One chapter. A lengthy chapter, but one chapter. To the nature of the Trinity, smatterings of verses here and there, almost all, by the way, in service to other considerations. Even in Scripture, realize that the entirety of creation gets two chapters. And in those two chapters, it retells creation in two different ways. And yet we have four chapters given over to this, three here in First Corinthians alone. Why so much time? Why make this fairly simple thing so difficult? We come to the end of it today, but as we will see, the chapter, not just the whole idea, but this chapter is somewhat confusing. It's got a lot of difficulties built into it. And again, we're reminded that there's a lot of background stuff that we probably don't know going on between Paul and the Corinthians that we're just not informed of. Yet still, the Holy Spirit has sought to keep this letter for us and has put this in the letter. This assures us that it is good for us to read, to listen, to think, and to practice what Paul has written down here for us. So what can we take away from a chapter that addresses such a specific problem that both you and I are unlikely to come across? Again, we don't have temples. We don't have idols the same way that Paul is speaking of here. What can we take away from this? Much, I think, in every way. First, Paul insists that you are to learn from the past not lean on it. You are to learn from the past, not lean on it. Paul points the Corinthians directly to the Old Testament, to this book that so many people today think is blasé and and old, and we have now gone far beyond. But nevertheless, Paul says, this is where you need to look for this. And from that book, he gives them a dire warning about their actions. But he does so in a way that's slightly odd, and I think we need to clarify first. What does Paul mean in these first five verses about the people being baptized into Moses and eating and drinking spiritual things? And then secondly, how in the world does he end up associating the rock that Moses struck with Christ? And not like in a loose way. He doesn't say, and the rock provided for them just as Christ provides for you. He says, no, the rock that followed them was Christ. Let's tackle that second issue first. A number of people have grave issues here. Paul is quite clearly allegorizing, out of thin air, as they might say, that the rock was Christ. The allegory simply means that the rock is not just a rock, but that it symbolizes something more than that. And in this case, it's Jesus. And there's plenty of people who would look at that and say, not only is that illegitimate, but even if Paul does it, you can't do it. Well, to that we would say, you're wrong, and you can do this, and you ought to read the Bible this way, because this is how Paul read the Bible. I don't think we want to say and insist that Paul reads the Bible in a different way than you and I should we can all read the same way. And there's a legitimate reason why Paul does this. The word that is used as rock in that particular passage of the rock that Moses struck to make water come out of is used 14 times in the book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. Is is three times used directly as a plain reference to a rock. Two of these happen when Moses is set in the cleft of the rock. He is placed in the rock as the glory of God passes on before him. It is used four times to talk about how sustenance came out of the rock for people, usually in reference to water. It is then used an additional seven times to talk about how God is a rock and how false gods are not rocks. And sometimes it draws a direct comparison between God being the rock and their false gods not being a rock. Now, once you understand that it's used more times to talk about water coming from the rock than it is actual rocks, it's not too much of a leap that we would think God is being called a rock not just because he is hard or he is craggy or because of anything else, but because he is the rock. Though rock doesn't refer to fortresses and it doesn't refer really to protection here, although it makes perfectly good sense that we would come to associate God as rock with protection because fortresses and cities with walls were built with rocks because they were great at protecting. But if you're reading through the Pentateuch, when you hear that God is a rock, the only thing the Pentateuch has really talked about rocks doing in the Pentateuch is providing water and sustenance for the people of God. God is the rock. God followed them and gave them what they needed. Now, this is not the only place that we see stuff like this happening. Although we do associate rock with protection, it is continually throughout the Bible noted that rocks provide. So take, for instance, Psalm 78, which uses that same Hebrew word sur three times, two of them directly in reference to water coming out of the rock. In verse 15, Psalm 78 says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. In verse 20, He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? And then in verse 35, what do we find? They remembered that God was their rock. Rock isn't used anywhere else in that psalm. What is the rock in that psalm? The rock is the rock that Moses struck. The rock was God and the God followed them. So it doesn't take much unless you want to deny that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God to assume that what Paul says here, Christ was the rock, is just a direct reading from the Old Testament. The Old Testament allegorizes, we allegorize, Paul allegorizes, perfectly acceptable. It has to be legitimate, but the Bible legitimizes it. Second, What's with all this other stuff about baptism and spiritual food? I don't think that we should press things too far. But simply understand that Paul is trying to draw a straight line between what the Israelites experienced, truly did experience, and what the Corinthians have experienced. And the point isn't to say that the sea was a true baptism, although it, it is certainly a type of baptism. It's a passing through death and, into, and judgment into life but that it's sufficiently like baptism to warrant a comparison. The giving of manna, the giving of pheasants and meat, all of it roughly corresponds to what the Lord's Supper is for us, giving us nutrition, giving us calories, giving us sustenance for life. These things are things that they experienced And remember, the Israelites' experience of these things, of being led through the Red Sea, of being provided for in the wilderness, would have signified to them, without a doubt, that God is for them, that they are his protected people, that they are provided for by him. And so Paul's connection to this is stung on us in verse 5. Nevertheless, although they have experienced all of this, and though all of these experiences— are telling them that they are protected, they are loved, and they are provided for by this God. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. The experience that they have had of God's kindness in the past, of His grace and His mercy in saving them from Pharaoh and providing for them in the wilderness was absolutely no guarantee of their position before Him forever. It is not that what happened in the past is somehow worthless. Those experiences are good and helpful, especially, as Paul says, on those of us to whom the end of ages has come. These things were written for us. You're not just reading about history, you're reading God's word for you. And he says these are illustrations so that you won't fall into the same trap. We are to learn from the past, both theirs and ours. And Paul is also not saying that your baptism and even taking of the Lord's Supper is not an important thing. It is important. But what we did there, whether it's in the taking of the Lord's Supper or in your baptism, as you think back, is no guarantee that your place before God is cemented forever. That is not what it means. Faith and repentance are what hold us close to God. And your baptism is meant to be a reminder that as long as you hold to the right confession, as long as you hold to the right even posture before God of repentance and faith, that you will be okay. But those things have to be done now, today. They cannot just be relied upon because you did them in the past. God shows us precisely what happens to them. Paul lists four things that they were. They were idolaters. They were sexually impure. They tested the Lord, and they grumbled. Each of these things seems to be linked with a specific time in the wilderness, And he says, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's quoting from Exodus 32, 6, which happens directly after the the incident and the worship of the golden calf. It demonstrates how close idolatry and fornication are indeed to scenes of revelry and food. Eating might not commend us to God, but that doesn't mean that it's meaningless. Paul goes on to say, they indulged in sexual immorality and they worshiped Baal. In Numbers 25, with the daughters of Moab leading the people of Israel astray. And they committed fornication with those daughters. They further tested the Lord, probably directly linked to Numbers 21. They complained again in the wilderness that there was no water. Did you bring us out here to die, Lord? And so God sent serpents to bite them, to kill them. And lastly, they grumbled against the Lord. They did this numerous times, but especially in Numbers 14. When God sent spies into the land, they saw that the land was indeed pleasant and good and flowing with milk and honey. It was everything that he had promised, only there were pretty big people there. It was pretty well fortified. And they came back and they grumbled saying, hey, if we try to go in there, we're going to die. Not remembering at all, not learning from the past of what the Lord just did to Egypt. They didn't believe God. Furthermore, they thought he was ruthless in bringing them out to the desert to kill them. The point in all of this is this. They had their experiences. But those experiences did not provide them with the right attitudes and the right loves. They didn't truly love God. They didn't truly trust Him. They certainly did not follow Him. And they turned to other gods for what they thought of would be their good. And Paul's not mincing words. In all of this, he says to the Corinthians, you are dangerously close to doing the same. The way the weak are treated, test the Lord. Their clear closeness to idolatry is dangerous. And you shouldn't be surprised by this type of passage. We can uphold the fact that God perseveres those who hold on to the faith. From the viewpoint of heaven, it is always the work of God given to us so that we would know and trust and have assurance and also provide for our humility. God does indeed cling on to and hold on to those who truly believe. Those whom he has given his spirit will never fall away. Those who are placed into the hands of Jesus, he will hang on to until the end. But from our vantage point, there is a grave necessity to hold on and to walk faithfully before God. The past friend, is not there for you to lean on. It is not there to prop you up, to make you think that you can stand because of some event that has gone on. Paul ends with a reminder, though. It is not what's gone on before, but what happens next that matters most. There is, in the end, nothing new under the sun. The same temptations that plagued the Israelites will plague us now. It plagued the Corinthians, and 2,000 years later, it plagues us. But God is always faithful. And those who truly do seek a refuge from the temptation, there is a way out. Which is also exactly, exactly what the wilderness wanderings are meant to imply to us. For those who don't grumble, for those who don't complain, the Lord was always going to provide for them. It was always something that the Lord was planning on doing. He sent them to the wilderness and gave them manna precisely because he knew they would need to be provided for. The Lord will always provide a way out. Today is the day that you ought to worry about. Just as you are not to be anxious about the future, you cannot lean on the past. Your baptism, on walking an aisle, on any experience, no matter how profound and impactful, so long as it lies in yesterday, is of no use to you today to lean upon. Learn from it. Understand the graciousness and the goodness of God trust in him, be faithful before him, repent if needed, and walk in the line of the faithful saints before you. Learn from your past, do not lean on it. Secondly, you are to flee from sin, not flirt with it. You are to flee from sin, not flirt with it. The gist from verse 14 down through verse 22 is that The people of God here are just getting a little too close to sin. Paul here is going to talk about participation. It's the word that's used here in the ESV. If you have a different translation, they might translate it as fellowship. And I want to say at the very outset that this is different than the unity that we have in the Spirit of the Lord. We are unified to Him, not by some sort of principles that we share in common or by being disciples who follow in his teaching, but the unity that we have with Jesus Christ via the Spirit is much more dramatic. It's much more connective than that. This fellowship that we have with the Lord is a real, full unity. We might go so far as to say it's a metaphysical unity. The Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. He is part of you. He is never to leave you. He has been given, and it is there and locked for sure with you if you truly have believed. And so it's not the same kind of participation that Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is a fellowship that is had through sharing meals, through outlooks, through acts of worship and and mental assent. If you, this afternoon, wanted to go watch the Lions playoff game and you decided that you weren't going to watch it in your house, you're going to go to a sports bar, you're going to go to Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever, and you were going to watch it, you were probably going to be there with a lot of other Lions fans, wearing the same kind of gear, watching and rooting in the same kind of way. And you might look at the way many of them are going to act, especially towards the end of the game when inebriation has set in, and you would say, that is not how I want to be seen. I don't want to be seen with them. I don't want to be seen as like them. Nevertheless, you are in some semblance participating with them. You're in fellowship with them because you're rooting for the same ends. You have the same outlook. You want the lions to win. You're rooting for the lions to win. You're excited if they do. You're disappointed if they don't, although you fully expect it by this time. But nevertheless, you are participating with them in some real way. And Paul is saying that's exactly what's going on with the Lord's table, now, you are connected by the Spirit, but simply sharing in the, in the bread and in the cup imply that you are partnering together somehow. There's one piece of bread there. We all share in the one piece of bread, he says. Therefore, you are partners together. And even in the Old Testament, people who didn't have the Spirit, by the way, were, were sharing with God and the other people, the very act of, of Opening up the sacrifices and eating of the sacrifices not only made them connected to God in some way, but connected to everyone else who did it. This is a basic tenet of the nature of things. You and your neighbor and the thing that you are serving. You and your neighbor and the God that you are with. You and your neighbor and the thing that you are there together to do. You are all connected in some real way. The sharing of this meat in the idol temple is not something that ought to be chalked up, therefore, to liberty. We don't know how the people participated in this. We don't know exactly what they were doing in the temple, what was going on in the temple. We don't know if they came at the end of the service. We don't know if they had to watch the entirety of the service. We don't know if they acted out any part of the service. We know nothing about it. But we do know that Paul says very, very clearly, it's not okay. Now, you could be forgiven, as I should be, for thinking that Paul considered all of this no big deal. After all, he mentioned this back in chapter 8, verse 10, and he indicated that people were indeed eating idol meat in the temple, and he made it seem like it was no big deal. He said there, "'If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols?' At no point in time does Paul come back there and say, and it's a problem that you're even eating there to begin with. Now, one of the things that that tells us is that the issue that he's dealing with is so important that the sin or the difficulty or the danger of eating in an idol temple is completely and utterly irrelevant. There is a major issue, right? If you stub your toe, it's a big deal, only if you're not bleeding internally at the same time, right? One thing in triage means that you are suffering much badly, more badly in one location than you are in another, and so you need to get treatment for that. And here, the disunity, the, the ruining of other people's conscience, the ruining of others standing before the Lord is much more important. Paul does this. He does this actually in the next chapter, in chapter 11. In the next chapter, he's going to talk about drunkenness And he's not going to chastise anyone for it. As a matter of fact, he almost points them to where they should go to get drunk. In chapter 11, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? He never says anything about, and you shouldn't get drunk, because the issue that is there of this disunity within the body of believers is so much more important. And here, Paul's coming back to the issue and saying, by the way, this is a dangerous, dangerous thing that you're doing. Now, the Corinthian response from all of this, especially from the strong, would likely be two things. First, they're offering this food stupidly to statues, not God's. The Greeks that were around, they're, they're offering it to these statues, and statues are nothing. They're just statues. What does it matter if we're there while they're doing this stupid thing? We think it's stupid. They think it's brilliant. They think that they're worshiping, but we don't think that. So the idol is nothing, as Paul himself has said. And secondly, they obviously don't want to. You'll notice that Paul never says that you're committing idolatry, obviously, His point isn't that their conscience is somehow caught up in the worship of this idol. The Corinthians' conscience seems to be clear. They're not trying to worship the idol. They have no intention of worshiping this idol. So why call it worship and why call it participation? Why blame us for anything that's going on? Let's assume that you know a woman who is married and works as a waitress in a restaurant. As many know, waitresses have a hard job. They work hard and they often do so for not great pay. And so to make a little extra cash on the side, she knows that it's helpful to be, we might say, friendly, especially to men whom happen to come in. She laughs a little bit harder than she ought to at what are undoubtedly bad jokes. She uses the term honey and sweetie every once in a while. She smiles broadly, Tries to have a twinkle in her eye when she does so, and she'll lightly touch arms, maybe. Now, all of this is done with a good intention, not of of truly flirting. She doesn't want to cheat on her husband. She doesn't meet. She's doing it only so the men will be a little bit more liberal with opening their wallets at the end of the night. What do you think her husband would say if he saw it? While well, there are some men out there who wouldn't have any problem with it, I frankly know of none who would think that this is good, okay, or all right in any way. And her husband can understand, rightly, trusting his wife. When she comes to him and she says, I don't mean anything by it. I, I, don't, I don't mean to draw them in. I don't mean to do any of that. I just want a little bit of extra money for you and I. And he can wholly agree with her on it. And he can say... Baby, I know. I know. And in the same breath say, But it ain't happening anymore. By the way, you can change the genders. I just think it makes more sense that way. But the way in which the roles play out doesn't actually matter here. She might know that it's nothing. He might know that it's nothing. But those men don't know that it's nothing. It reflects poorly upon her And it reflects poorly upon her husband, or if you reverse it, the same thing. God is jealous over his people. And by participating in this festival, they are provoking his jealousy. Just like that husband's jealousy is provoked by the actions of his wife. They might want nothing more than steak, and God might know that and say, I understand, steak is great, I get that, but the way you're going about it cannot happen. There are real demons here. People are offering food to them, and they certainly think that you are there in that building for the exact same reason. Friends, we cannot flirt with idolatry or with any sin. We are undoubtedly not in the same situation the Corinthians are in. Paul As showed above, though, notes that idolatry leads to a whole host of sins. You cannot flirt with sin. Do you sneak up to that line just to see how close you can get to it? Do you say things purposely as as close to the, the line as you can get but still technically stand behind it? What can you do and still claim your rights and liberties under the auspices of Jesus freeing you from the law? How much can you possess and still say, I'm not actually materialistic? How little can you help others, care for others, do for others, and still say, I'm okay because Christ has forgiven me? Such things are nothing more than flirting with sin. And Paul asks clearly and rhetorically, are you stronger than he? Not just are you provoking the Lord to jealousy, but are you stronger than he? And I think when most people read that, they think stronger than God. Well, obviously we're not stronger than God, but I don't think Paul means that at all because he just got done saying the Lord. And who is the Lord? In Paul's little shorthand, it's always Jesus. He's saying, are you stronger than Jesus? Did, did Jesus, as a human, do any of that? Did Jesus somehow flirt with sin? Did he get as close to it as he could just to, just to see what it was like? Just to see what, what he could do to get away with stuff? Did he pull it close just to see if he could have the power to send it away? Friends, you are to flee from sin. Paul would say in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The shadow of sin ought to be so far from you that the reality could never possibly touch you. Not only should it not be around you, it shouldn't even be named among you. Flee. From sin, friends, do not flirt with it. And thirdly, you are to produce what is good, not procure it. You are to produce what is good, not procure it. There are two distinct points that Paul seems to be making here, from twenty from verse twenty three all the way through eleven one. The first one is simple and straightforward. You are to look out for other people's good, not your own. And the second seems to be guidelines for when you can and can't eat this meat. Finally, Paul gets around to answering that little question, okay? He's said a whole bunch of stuff, and now he's going to give you guidelines for how to do it. The first point is really straightforward. The effort by some to get or to procure that which is best in the world, the best that the world has to offer, whether it's in terms of meat or in terms of cars or in terms of anything else, is wrongheaded, and it is not the pattern of life that is passed down to us in our tradition or exemplified by Christ. Rather, we are to live for the good and the honor and the glory of one another. This does not mean that we don't desire good for ourselves. But it does mean that we trust that the Lord not only is looking out for our good, but just as we have been given the Spirit so that we would look for the good of others, so we believe that others have been given the same Spirit to look out for our good, that we don't have to do that anymore, that they're doing it. After all, if Paul is giving this instruction to everybody, You get to look out a little bit for everybody else, and every other person is acting on your behalf for your good. The second seems also pretty straightforward. If meat is placed before you and it was bought in the market, don't worry about where it came from. Your conscience shouldn't be offended by it. Did it come from an idol? If you are not engaged in the offering or in the service, but quite removed from it as you would be if you were buying it from the market even after it had been butchered in that service and then taken to the market, Paul says, don't worry about it. And the idea of why is pretty simple. Psalm 24.1. The, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth is the Lord and the Lord has handed that over to you. You get to eat and take from the earth. No matter what other people do, you know that it's from the Lord. So if you know that God made it, and if God gave it over to you to eat, and you eat with it with thankfulness, what it passed through to get to you is spiritually no big deal, okay? If the meat is four weeks old, maybe a big deal, right? But religiously, no big deal. There is one exception, and that is if somebody comes up to you and whispers to you. We don't know if Paul means for this to be a A pagan believer or a believer in Jesus Christ. But if they come up to you and speak to you and say, this was offered to an idol, the implication seems to be that they're doing this for your benefit. They think that you shouldn't take it. If it's a believer, they want you to know that, hey, this meat was offered to an idol. You shouldn't take it. If it's an unbeliever, it seems to be the only reason why somebody would say that is because they think that you ought not take it. And Paul says, well, then you're not supposed to eat it. If they tell you this out of out of thinking that it's wrong for you to, then you shouldn't eat it. Not because you should be terribly bothered by it, but for the sake of their conscience. They told you clearly because they think that you should have a problem with it, so just simply don't eat of it. The major problem comes in the question that begins the second half of verse 29, which seems to be directly and completely contradictory to the very thing that Paul just said. He says two questions in verse, the end of verse 29 and then in 30. The verse 29 says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul basically just said, For the sake of someone else's conscience, you shouldn't eat meat. And then he turns around and says, So why should my my conscience, or why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Well, you you just told us that it should be, is one reason, right? So, the question needs to be explained. And it's obviously a huge problem in the text, and it's problematic for a number of clear reasons, so people have spent a lot of pages, a lot of text, trying to give an answer to it. My answer for what it's worth is this. Both of these two questions that Paul asks, verse 29 and then in verse thirty. Are there to give instructions, rhetorical questions that ought to give instructions to the two groups of people who are basically present in the text? One is the strong and one is the weak. The four at the beginning of verse, or not at the beginning, but in the middle of verse 29, four shows that this is, I think, his conclusion for both sides, and he addresses the strong first. The question in verse 29, I think, is stated a little poorly in the ESV. The Christian Standard Bible is, I think, more on point when it says, for why is my freedom judged by another? They use the word determined here, but it's the normal word for judge. And that word has got the same general gist in Greek as it has in English where it can be kind of like a weighing in the scales, that you're going to put the evidence on both sides and you're going to figure out which side is right and which side is wrong. But even in English, that word judge veers pretty closely over into a negative outcome. This is why people say, don't judge me. They don't mean put my life in the balance and tell me that it's good, right? If you were to tell people that they're good, say, hey, you know what, you're a really good person. They don't ever come back and say, don't judge me, right? They mean it negatively, right? This is exactly what I think Paul is getting at here. This word is also translated in places condemned. I think it'd be easy to translate it that way here. Why should my freedom be condemned by someone else's conscience? And I think what Paul is telling the strong here is this. Why stick to your rights through all this? Why cling to them so tightly so that other people think you damned because of what you do? Why let it get to that point? What is the point in it? Is meat truly that important? And I think that Paul is saying meat isn't that important. It's not important enough for people to condemn you. So just let it go. The second question in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? He is addressing to the weak. Why am I being blasphemed? Why am I being unduly charged if I'm giving thanks? In other words, I think Paul is telling the weak, why are you looking for trouble? Why are you you trying to find out what happened to the meat and what didn't happen to the meat so that you can be overly contentious about the things, the good things that are placed in front of you? If somebody places meat in front of you, eat it. If somebody places food in front of you as a kindness and grace, if they invite you over to their house and say, here's a meal that I prepared for you, you're not to ask if it was offered to an idol. But if you give thanks for it, and the Lord is the one who has provided for you, your conscience should not be in the way. To both, Paul says this, Your own problems are not normative for everybody else, and your own rights are not determinative for everyone else, but you are to be concerned about the good of others, and especially that of the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. And that particular quote is wonderful, not just because it gives us an example of how we are to live our whole lives, but because of the context that it comes in, it gives a very definite understanding of what it means to press into the glory of God. You press into the glory of God and you seek the glory of God in everything by seeking the good of others in everything. Pressing them as being more worthy of honor than yourself. Of thinking highly of them and very little of yourself. Of spending your rights for them and not for yourself. Whether you partake in that which is good or you abstain from any hint of that which is bad, you glorify God by loving others and seeking their good. So positively, seek others above yourself. Negatively, as Paul goes on to say, give no offense. And he basically gets everybody. Give no offense to the Jewish people. Give no offense to the pagans. Give no offense to the church of God. Give no offense. As far as you can, do not offend people. Paul, this is precisely how he acts. He says, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow in my steps as I follow in the steps of Christ. This is where that ninth chapter becomes So important for what he's saying here. He was willing to give up his rights. He was willing to give up God-given rights that he could demand out of people for their benefit. So follow in his example. And his example is nothing besides that of Jesus. And in all of this, Jesus looms incredibly large. He didn't come to the world to claim his right of worship from men. Nor did he come to claim what was due to him from men. But rather, that we could, from Jesus, who bears a weight and a burden that was not his own, and he does so for the good of others, not that we could claim our own rights, but so that in the giving of rights to us, we might give them away in order to show honor and power to others, show that we are good in Christ as we are, that he is our sole sight of glory and desire in this life so that we would live for other people and not ourselves, so that we can be imitators of Jesus himself who didn't come to the earth to claim anything from us, but came to the earth to give of himself for us. This is the law of Christ. This is the path to the glory of God and the summation of all of the good that we have been left here to do. Meat is good, but love is better. Follow Paul. As he follows Christ, and in doing so, live your lives for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let us pray. You have spoken in your word, O Lord, what we are to do. May it be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your people have amongst themselves the mind of Jesus to honor and serve one another before themselves. Let this love be the mark of your people so that the work of the Spirit and the example of Jesus might shine as a light in the darkness. Do this for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. If you would stand and sing our song of response, I stand amazed in the presence.